Please open your Bibles to Galatians and chapter 1. As you're turning there, we are walking through the ramifications of getting the gospel right as well as getting it out, and we need to do both. An unheard gospel is no gospel at all for the people who don't hear. We need to get the message out and get it right. Galatians is all about getting the gospel right. I have uh, something of a friend who sent me a book of his on eschatology, the study of the end times, except that the book title had an incorrect spelling regarding the word prophecy. He had spelt it with an S rather than a C at the end of the word, and so it was end times prophesy. And it did not speak well of him that he hadn't even proofread or had others proofread his work before he got it out. And there it was, a published work with End Times Prophesy as the title. It's not good. And though the ramifications for him was that it might cause people not to go to page one, two, three, or four, because why read a book where the guy can't even get the title correct in spelling? When it comes to the gospel, there's far more at stake. Life and death, eternal life and eternal death. We must get the gospel right. Wherever there's light, there are bugs, it's been said. And Paul wrote this epistle to the Galatian church after his departure from the Galatian churches. And what had happened is since his departure, Jewish Christian fanatics had moved in. The bugs, uh, they, had, they had moved in. And they were perverting the gospel, the gospel of justification by faith alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. No sooner had Paul left the region of the churches of Galatia than the false apostles went to work. The gospel was under siege and Paul wrote with strong language. You read uh, Galatians 1 as we will in a moment. And you'll see it's hot off the quill. It really is strong language that we're going to read here. Paul was angry. And in terms of the churches that he wrote to, there's nothing like this anywhere else in the New Testament. There's no other letter that has this kind of ferocity. Uh, you read 1 Corinthians where there were massive problems in the church. He didn't start off the way he starts off in his letter to the Galatians. He thanks God for the Corinthians, for the grace of God that they know. He did eventually, of course, deal with the issues very, very strongly, but he started in terms of, I thank God for you, for the grace of God that's amongst you. That There's none of this in Galatians chapter 1. He is irate, and he wants to make sure people know where he stands and where God is on the issue of the gospel. Let's read uh, Galatians chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age 
according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Notice now, no thanking God for them. He just launches in. Here we go. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Galatians 1, wow, what a chapter. The gospel was under siege, and ladies and gentlemen, the gospel is under siege in our own day. Whenever the gospel's preached, the devil is lurking to seduce men and women with falsehood, to bring in a false gospel. Acts chapter 20, Paul was saying his farewells to the Ephesian elders as they met elsewhere for what would be the first pastor's retreat, I'm sure, elders' retreat. Uh, Acts chapter 20, verse 29, Paul uh, said these words recorded by Luke, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples, the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. He was looking people right in the face and says, uh, from among your own selves, from some of you here, people are going to arise. Men here are going to be speaking twisted things. They're going to be wolves, drawing away disciples after them. Be alert, be alert, be alert. That's the message. As we're reading Galatians 1, let's start in verse 1 with the word Paul, the first word there. The, the name Paul in Greek means small or little. Paul, an apostle, that is a sent forth one. He is a man of dignity in terms of an apostle, is a sent forth one, and usually the word is used to represent a high dignified uh, official, someone who is representative of a king or a high ranking official in the court. Uh, he has a mandate, he has a mission, he has a message. And the message of an apostle uh, in the New Testament is the message of Christ and it has been received from God. He's heard from God, he has the highest authority because he's speaking and writing and preaching in the name of God. He's received his message from the highest authority possible from God himself. That was an apostle, Paul an apostle. Then we read these words, 
not from men nor through man. Paul's apostleship, while under fire from the false teachers, didn't originate by means of human agency, but by, by divine authority and by divine call. And therefore, when he writes, when he preaches, what he says is binding upon every Christian. If he's a true apostle, binding upon every Christian at all times and in all places. Have you ever heard of Christians who say, I love Jesus, I've just got a problem with the Apostle Paul? <laughs> uh, actually, you've got a problem with Jesus because Jesus commissioned Paul as an apostle. And when we come to the New Testament, when we have Paul's writings, it is Scripture. Even Peter uh, acknowledged that in 2 Peter chapter 3. People twist Paul's writings as they do the rest of the scriptures. And the implication, of course, there is when you're reading Paul, you're reading scripture. And so you've got a problem with Paul, you've got a problem with Jesus who commissioned him and who is now writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in his epistles that we have. Not from men nor through man. Um, a war was on, as it is always. And this was not the time to take things on the chin. Now, for the sake of the gospel, Paul in Galatians must, M-U-S-T, must defend himself and his apostleship. In Luke 10, verse 16, Jesus said this, Whoever listens to you, speaking to the original 12, whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you rejects me. But whoever rejects me, rejects him who sent me. That was the dignified office of the apostle. And Paul now stands in that office. Not from men, nor through man, we continue reading, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. Despite what the Galatians had heard, Paul had received a a sacred and divine stewardship and must defend it. And that took boldness. It takes boldness, courage, conviction. The head of the church is not Peter or Paul or anyone, but Jesus Christ. He's the head. We're the body. The head of the church is Jesus Christ. And Paul was called to be his apostle. And Paul loses no time in defending himself against the charge that he had thrust himself into the ministry, that he was a self-appointed apostle. Not at all. He says to the Galatians, uh, my call uh, may seem inferior to you, but those who have come to you are either called of men or by man. My call is the highest possible call, for it is by Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Strong words. The clause here, God the Father, seems superfluous on first sight, yet Paul had good reason for adding it. He had to deal with Satan and his agents who endeavored to deprive him of his God-given influence. 
and to take away the gospel of Jesus Christ from this uh, new church uh, in Galatia, the gospel of Jesus, whom God raised from the dead, who was raised by God the Father from the dead. And these perverters of the gospel, these purveyors of the false gospel, these promoters of the false gospel resist not only the Son, but the Father who sent, sent him. They resist both the Father and the Son. So, to add to, to adjust, to resist the gospel has severe implications, severe consequences. It is to reject both the Son of God and God the Father. There's unity here. There's equality of rank. Jesus Christ with his Father. A lot could be said, but let's move on to verse 2. And all the brothers who are with me. Again, this is not insignificant. He's uh, referred to Jesus. He's referred to the Father. And then writes, and all the brothers who are with me. Now, Paul, writing from Antioch, was not standing alone. He was not walking alone. And this should go very, very far in shutting the mouths of the false apostles. Paul's intention is to exalt his own ministry at this point because he's under attack and the gospel's under siege. And he has to discredit the false teachers. So his intention is to exalt his own ministry while discrediting theirs, the false teachers. And he adds for good measure the argument that he doesn't stand alone in this, but that all the brethren with him attest to the fact that his doctrine is true, is divinely true, is of God. And the message is this, I'm not a lone ranger. I'm not just lone ranger leaving silver bullets at the scene. Uh, no, uh, it's actually you Galatians who have moved away, not me. The Christians in Antioch stand with me as I write to you. Again, there's no normal greeting here. He, he, he doesn't say, I thank God for you, I'm thankful for you, I'm praising God for you. He, he says grace to you, but that's it. Then he just launches. Continuing in verse 2, to the churches of Galatia, churches. There is uh, what we call the universal church. The church is all the elect of God in all ages and all places. The church of God, which uh, God purchased with an unusual phrase, his own blood. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Uh, God the Son. Uh, giving his blood for the church. He gave himself for the church, we read in Ephesians chapter 5. So there's the universal church, and then there are local churches, and uh, Paul writes to the churches, plural, of Galatia. Here it's referencing the local church, and here the word is plural, referring to the churches that Paul had planted in the southern region of Galatia. And so he's got every right to address them as a spiritual father. And so he does. Verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father 
and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me quote Martin Luther here. Grace remits sin and peace quiets the conscience. Notice verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Hmm. Grace remits sin. Peace quiets the conscience. Praise the Lord that for this. You see, the law reveals our guilt and it fills our conscience with holy terror. It should. And it drives us to despair. And it should. So that we should throw up our hands and say, I need a savior. Yes, that's the purpose of the law. It's our schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. The more someone seeks credit for themselves by their own efforts, the deeper they go into debt. Law to the proud, grace to the humble. Again, a quote of Martin Luther. When you see a proud person, they need the law. They don't need, Jesus loves you. No, they, right then, if they're proud, they need to hear, you have come short of the grace of God, the glory of God. Well, they haven't come short of the grace of God in that point. They've come short of the glory of God. Let me quote Romans 3.23 correctly. All of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And all of us are therefore in deep weeds and there's no way out. And the law is inflexible. The law condemns. The law shows us our guilt. But within the provision of the law was Old Testament sacrifices pointing forward to the ultimate sacrifice for sin, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You're not going to be convincing someone to come to the light unless they realize they're in darkness. Uh, Only lost people can be found. Jesus said, I didn't come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. That's been misunderstood. Um, Jesus thought some people were righteous and he didn't go to talk to them. No, he's, he's making the statement, I didn't come to call righteous people but sinners to repentance. And the message is all are unrighteous. That's the message of the Bible. All are sinners, but they've got to acknowledge their sin. If you think you're righteous, there's no message for you. I, I'm not calling you. I'm, I'm calling you out by revealing sin. Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, if you understand it, it's, it's not good news at all, except that Jesus is the one who fulfilled that law. We can't even get past the first few stanzas of, uh, of the, the text, the verses of the text. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Well, that sounds like good news till you realize I'm not pure in heart. That's not good news. Amen. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Well, has there ever been a time when you haven't shown mercy? You don't qualify for that. Go through the list. We don't qualify. We don't qualify. We don't qualify. And Jesus sums it up in Matthew 5, 48. You must be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, perfect compared to Hitler or Stalin, maybe. 
but perfect on the level with the Father. No way. That's where Jesus takes us. The law shows us, reveals to us our guilt and points us to the Savior. Now, these words, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ is significant because the apostle is not wanting to wish the Galatians you know, um, grace and peace from the emperor or from kings or governors, but from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is the message. Praise the Lord. And grace is the gospel. Verse 4, talking of Jesus, who gave himself for our sins. Let that penetrate. Let that truth resound in your ears. Who gave himself for our sins. This is stunning. It's, it's a phrase we might have read a hundred times, but have you stopped to think about it, ponder it, mull it, muse over it? You see, the gospel, hear this, the gospel is a who, not just a what. You see, the gospel is Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins. You see, a plan didn't save you. A plan didn't go to the cross. A plan wasn't raised from the dead. But Jesus, Jesus went to the cross and was raised from death. The gospel is about the person and work of Christ. That is the gospel, his substitutionary death. That's where Paul goes immediately, who gave himself for our sins. And it's the message of substitution. If there's one word that would sum up the gospel, it's that word, substitution. Jesus lived and died in our place. His blood was not spilled accidentally, but with full intention. Christ gave himself, not here merely as an example or a help, but for a specific purpose, for our sins. Hear that, for our sins. We don't read, uh, God received our works. That's not the message. But God gave. Gave what? Well, not gold, not silver, or paschal lambs or an angel. But God gave himself. That's stunning. What for? Not for a crown, not for a kingdom, not for our goodness to make us good. But Christ gave himself. Who gave himself for our sins? The, these words are like so many thunderclaps of protest from heaven against every kind and type of self-merit. Underscore these words. If you've got a Bible, you can mark, uh, mark these words. They're full of comfort for sore 
consciences. How can we obtain remission for our sins? Here's the answer. The man who is named Jesus Christ, the Son of God, gave himself for our sins. These words are heavy artillery and it explodes the papacy. It explodes man-merited salvation, the works of man, the merits of man, the superstitions of man. If our sins could be removed by our own efforts, there would be no need for the Son of God to be given for them. No. This sentence, a few short words, who gave himself for our sins. It defines our sins as great, so great, in fact, that the whole world could not make amends for a single sin. God gave himself. Jesus gave himself for our sins. The greatness of the ransom. Christ himself, the Son of God, indicates this. It shows that sin is vicious and heinous. Christ gave himself for our sins. So vicious is sin that only the sacrifice of Christ could atone for sin. We've got a little view of sin. We've got a little view of the Savior. When we reflect that that one little word, sin, embraces the whole kingdom of Satan, and that includes everything that is horrible and heinous, we have reason to tremble. I have reason to tremble. But often we are careless. We make light of sin. We think that by some little work or merit we can dismiss sin. But when we realize Christ gave himself for our sins, it's a wonderful comfort. The troubled conscience can be unraveled by the enormity and the immensity of sin, rightfully so. Some people say, I don't want you to feel bad. Sometimes it's good to feel bad. Guilty people should feel their guilt. But the message of the gospel is Christ gave himself for guilty people. We must grasp the enormity of sin to grasp the enormity of the Savior and his work for us. And sin cannot harm those who believe in Christ because he has overcome sin by his death. We're going slowly through the passage, but this is wonderful stuff. It's profound. Oh, hallelujah. <laughs> Notice especially the pronoun our, O-U-R, our, and its significance. You see, we might grant that Christ gave himself for the sins of Peter and Paul and others who are worthy of such grace. That's a contradiction in terms. You're not worthy of grace. Grace is unmerited favor. So he might say, well, he, he gave himself for, for the big guys, for the Peters, the Pauls, and so on. But we might find it hard to believe that Christ gave himself for 
our sins, for your sins, for my sins. That kind of attitude actually arises from a false conception of sin, the conception that sin is a small matter. Not at all. It's huge. And that's why salvation is amazing, an amazing story of grace. Luther, let us equip ourselves against the accusations of Satan with this and similar passages of Holy Scripture. If he says, thou shalt be damned, you tell him, no, for I fly to Christ who gave himself for my sins. In accusing me of being a damnable sinner, you are cutting your own throat, Satan. You are reminding me of God's fatherly goodness toward me that he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. In calling me a sinner, Satan, you really comfort me above measure. Amen. Christ will not be the judge of the believer to bring condemnation to us. Why? For he gave himself for our sins. He doesn't trample down the fallen, but raises them. He comforts the brokenhearted. Otherwise, Paul would be lying when he writes, who gave himself for our sins. Continuing on. To deliver us from the present evil age. So, Two things are in view, for our sins and to deliver us from the present evil age. The New Testament is very clear. It speaks of two ages, this age, which is here called the present evil age and the age to come. And Christ gave himself to rescue us from this present age, which is under God's judgment. It's an evil age because it has an evil ruler. He's the prince of this world, this world system. God is in overall charge, of course. But the world system is divorced from the truth of God and under condemnation and the wrath of God. Christ, though, suffered our condemnation, taking it upon himself by his death. He rescued us from this present evil age. How did he do it? By means of the cross. Without the cross, there are no Christians. There are no, there's no place of hope. All is black. All is blackness. All is hostile. All is hostility. All is damnation. All is judgment. But he gave himself for our sins. To deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. Again, the death of Christ was no accident, but the result of the sovereign will of God from all eternity. Verse 5, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. To whom? Referring to the Father. Um, there's going to be no glory outside of the cross. That grotesque, that cruel, that vicious brutal punishment that Christ received in our place. Horrible though it was, 
as we would look with earthly eyes. Spiritually, it was glorious. A victory was won. A victory was won over sin, over hell, over death. Death is forever defeated. Paul writes later in Galatians chapter 6, but be it far from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. You see, if salvation is what God and I can do together, only partial glory goes to God. Think about that. Salvation is of the Lord. That's what the scripture says. Edward Mote wrote famous hymn in 1834, On Christ the solid rock I stand. It starts with these words, these familiar words. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That speaks of his death and his life. Jesus not only died for us, he lived for us. He fulfilled the Lord's demands on our behalf. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Fourth verse, when he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, my, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless, to stand before the throne. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. You see, again, if salvation is what God and I can do, only partial glory goes to God. In the five solas of the Reformation, S-O-L-A-S, the five solas, the, the five alones of the Reformation, the word sola means alone. Each of these solas summarize the biblical gospel uh, recovered and proclaimed at that time. Justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. All to the glory of God alone. How do we know this? Based on the sure foundation of Scripture alone. The Reformers were very clear this is not something new. Some people have the idea that the true church started in the, fifth, the 16th century with the Reformation. Nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, the Reformers were calling the Roman Catholic Church back to Catholicity, back to what is the view of all faithful Christians through the centuries. Justification by faith alone, based on the merit and righteousness of Christ alone. Uh, you, you not only find it in the New Testament, but in the early church, what we call the early church fathers. Here's four examples, quotes. Uh, one would be Tertullian, who lived from around 155 to 230 AD, a quote of his, God will impute righteousness to those who believe in him and make the just live through him. 
and declare the Gentiles to be his children through faith. Basil of Caesarea, who lived from 330 to 379. Here's a quote. Uh, This is perfect and pure boasting in God when one is not proud on account of his own righteousness but knows that he is indeed unworthy of the true righteousness and is justified solely, S-O-L-E-Y, solely by faith in Christ. From the 4th century, Marius Victorinus, We know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith and the faith of Jesus Christ. It is faith alone that gives justification and sanctification. The preacher John Chrysostom, who lived around 347 to 407, quoting him, God's grace has allowed him that did no wrong to be punished for those who had done wrong, him that was righteousness itself, he made sin. That is, allowed him to be condemned as a sinner, as one cursed to die, so that we might be not just righteous, but righteousness, indeed, the righteousness of God. End quote. Scripture alone, what's that? That's the summing up of the doctrine that the Bible alone is the Word of God. As such, it is the soul, S-O-L-E, soul written divine revelation and alone has the authority to bind the conscience of the believer absolutely. So, la gratia, grace alone. Our salvation rests solely on the work of God's grace for us. Because of this, human boasting is not merely discouraged or kept to a minimum, but is excluded completely. Sola fide, faith alone. Justification is by faith alone. Faith is the soul, S-O-L-E. Faith is the sole ground of our acceptance with God by which our sins are remitted and imputed to Christ and the merit of Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. Solus Christus, Christ alone. The Lord Jesus Christ is the only mediator through whose work we are redeemed. And soli Deo Gloria, to God alone belongs the glory. Each sola is important, but the first four really exist to preserve, to preserve the last one namely the glory of God. By sola scriptura, we declare the glory of God's authority by noting that only his inspired word can command us absolutely. Sola fide, solus Christus, and sola gratia all exalt God's glory in salvation. And God, and God alone, through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, saves his people from sin and death. So Paul writes, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Amen means it's right. This is true. It's a word of assertion. It's a word of affirmation and attestation. I believe it. It's true. I believe it. 
It's true. I believe it. That's what we say when we say amen. I believe it. It's true. So be it. And I trust the same response rises up in your heart as you hear this one saving gospel of Jesus Christ. As Paul goes on, he's going to just lay it out. Verse 6, he writes, I'm astonished. I'm astonished. It's a Greek word, thomazo, and it means amazed. It means astonished. It means to be astounded, bewildered, even shocked. Paul's amazed. Paul's astonished. He's dumbfounded and perplexed with the Galatians. You're blowing my mind. That's what he's saying. I'm astonished. I'm amazed. Thomazzo. You're blowing my mind. He's stunned that they have so quickly deserted the gospel that he had preached to them. He'd just been with them in person and proclaimed to them the truth. They'd received this apostolic message. They'd received it by faith and by it they were saved. But Paul had just about almost no more left town than these Judaizers had moved in. The bugs had moved in into the vacuum created by his absence. And they had seduced the gullible Galatians. Thomazzo, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him. Notice that, him. To desert the gospel is to desert God. He didn't start by saying, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the gospel. No, it's beyond that. It is that, but it's more than that. It is that, but it's not merely that. It is that they are deserting the gospel, but in deserting the gospel, they are deserting God. God himself. It's God's message. The verb you here is plural. You, plural are deserting. So notice, notice too, you plural are deserting. It's in the present tense. It's happening right now. Even as Paul's writing this, they are at that very moment falling away from their fidelity to the true gospel. This makes them defectors of the worst kind, leaving God and joining with the enemy of their soul, the devil. According to Paul, according to Scripture, According to the Holy Spirit who inspired Scripture, to desert the gospel is to abandon, is to desert Him, namely God Himself. That's to say God is the gospel. To believe the gospel in reality is to receive God into one's life. We don't have God in our life without having put our whole trust in the message of the gospel. You see, apart from the gospel, everyone is separated from God. An enormous chasm separates holy God from sinful man. And if anyone is to know God, that person must believe his saving gospel. Deserting God and forsaking the gospel is synonymous. It's one and the same. If anyone alters the gospel, he's become 
a spiritual turncoat toward God. That word deserting, again, present tense. Mata tithamai, Greek word. It's a military term used to refer to a soldier who abandons his post in the heat of battle. Strong words. Meta tithamai, the deserters. You, plural, are deserters. By falling prey to the false teachers, the Galatians were doing just this. They were forsaking their singular loyalty to God and were abandoning their exclusive allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. You're deserters, spiritual turncoats. Wow. Their objection to Paul's gospel is identical to that recorded in the 15th chapter of the book of Acts to the effect that it was not enough for the Galatians to believe in Christ or be baptized, but that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. That's what we're going to see as we read on in Galatians. Except you are circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. That was the message of the false teachers. It was as if Christ were a workman who'd begun a building and left it for Moses to finish it. No. Deserting him. I'm astonished. You're so quickly, so quickly deserting him. Not years down the line. This is so quick. It's happened so quickly. You're deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. Do you see that in your text, in your Bible? Who called you in the grace of Christ. Paul had to remind the Galatians that it was God who called you by the grace of Christ. By sovereign grace, God had irresistibly summoned them, called them out of darkness into the glory of the light of the Lord Jesus Apart from any foreseen goodness in them, the Lord Jesus effectually drew them into fellowship with God the Father. And Paul now charges them with abandoning the very saving call of Christ upon their lives. I quoted Martin Luther a good deal. Let me quote him again. The article of justification must be sounded in our ears incessantly because the, the, of the frailty of our flesh, because the frailty of our flesh will not permit us to take hold of it perfectly and to believe it with all our heart, end of quote. We must hear it incessantly because the frailty of our flesh will not permit us to take hold of it perfectly and to believe it with all our heart. I think I could sum that up by saying our default, our default position as human beings is... A works program, a works program with God. Dr. Michael Reeves said this, because Christ's redemptive work is entirely sufficient, the gospel is God's kind work of rescue, not his mere offer of assistance. Oh, that's pure gold. (laughs) The gospel, he goes on, is not a call for the strong and the good 
to prove themselves. It is a call for the weak and the bad to prove the depths of the mercy of Christ. To that I say, Amen. That's true. That's it. That's the reality. Who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Different. There are two kinds of gospels. There's the true one and everything else. And everything else is a false gospel. It's non-saving. It's a rip-off religion that only damns the soul. The word different, it's the Greek word heteros, denotes a message of a totally different kind. It's not like the others. One of these things is not like the others. Heteros. We know that word, heterosexual. Heteros, different. This gospel of the Judaizers, this so-called gospel of the Judaizers is not simply a little different. It's completely different. Completely different. Those who have been deceived have exchanged the gospel of God for a lie. This gospel offers no true salvation at all. This other gospel is a sham, a counterfeit gospel with a mangled message. It's nothing more than a rip-off religion that will damn its followers. I hate false religion. I love people, but I hate the false gospel of the Roman Catholic Church, of Jehovah's Witnesses, of the Mormon Church, the LDS. On and on we could go listing false gods and false gospels. We must get God right and we must get the gospel right. God, who is Trinity, must get that right. We must get the deity of Christ right. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. That's what Jesus said about himself, John chapter 8. See, the, the Galatians are leaving. They have left on a jet plane. They're leaving the truth for what? For a different, a heteros gospel, a different gospel. The implication here is that there are two kinds of gospels. There's the true gospel and there is a false gospel. In fact, many false gospels. Put another way, there's a saving gospel and a non-saving gospel. The gospel, summing it up, is the good news of God's rescue for guilty sinners, not his mere offer of assistance, to quote Dr. Reeves. Divine accomplishment is the gospel, and on the other side is human achievement. And on the divine accomplishment side of the page, if you were to write two words, divine accomplishment on the left-hand part of your paper and on the other side, the right-hand side, human achievement. On the one side, divine accomplishment, it will only have one thing mentioned, the gospel of Jesus Christ. On the other side, human achievement, you can have pages and pages and pages and pages of lists of false gospels, false gods and false gospels. It doesn't matter whether it's a huge thing when we're talking about human achievement or whether it's a tiny thing. 
so long as man's part is the critical, determinative part, you have a system based on works, not grace. This, this is so vital we get this. It wasn't a big thing, just get circumcised and, uh, yeah, Christ, 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 we all love it, we, we sing about Christ. Um, you just need to be circumcised. They added one thing to the gospel. As we're going to see, there's no gospel at all. The Roman Catholic Church hasn't just added one thing to the gospel, but dozens and dozens and dozens of things. Any element of human works trashes the message of the gospel, which is the grace of God. Did you see that? You're turning away from the grace of God to a different gospel. The gospel is a message of grace. And grace, to be grace, is all grace. Let me illustrate this as we begin to wrap this up. Suppose you came to me and said, John, I have a $15,000 car here. If you'll pay me $15,000, I'll give you the car. <laughs> We'd all agree that's, that's not grace. That's works. That's something I have to do, right? But suppose you said, John, I have a $15,000 car here, and I'll simply give you the car. We'd all agree. That's grace, not works. Well, I think we get that very clearly. But now let's try to mix the two concepts. Suppose you said, John, here's a $15,000 car, and I'll be $14,999 gracious to you if you'll simply pay me a dollar. Have we succeeded in mixing grace and works? No, no, no we haven't. For what's the practical difference between that last offer and you simply saying, John, here's a $15,000 car, I'll sell it for a dollar. Do you see? You're still coming to me on the basis of selling, not giving. You've not changed your principle. All you've done is simply lowered the asking price. And that's Paul's entire point in Romans 11.6. But if it is by grace... It is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. We'll close here. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the inspired word of God. Thank you for Paul the apostle, who's our apostle. Not called of men, but by Jesus Christ himself. We thank you for this message. Let us never depart from it. So that when he shall come with trumpet sound, we'll be found dressed in his Christ's righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.